Welcome to the Plutonomics Podcast with Lori Cammie and Barnaby Levin. The word Plutonomics means the study of wealth. It's our mission to educate, to help clients think about their goals and how they might benefit from working with an advisor to achieve them. But more importantly, it's to make sure our listeners understand both the pros and cons of any issue so they can make informed decisions and increase the odds of finding the right answer for them. You see, it's not who's right or wrong, but knowing there are no disinterested parties or unbiased opinions and that where you sit depends on where you stand. The challenge to making good decisions is to start by questioning one's assumptions and to break free of our prejudices because the truth usually lies somewhere in between. There are always two sides to every issue, both of which have merit. It's been a while, and our apologies for that, but because we've done almost 50 of these on such a broad range of topics, we only want to take your time when we have something important to say or discuss. Last month, for example, we talked about the power of compounding and how to retire rich, which we hope you'll listen to if you haven't already. But today's podcast, which will run a bit longer than usual, is something that's been on a lot of people's minds, and we want to address it at some length, which is the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and its fall out across the industry. Given the recent failures of both Signature and Silicon Valley Bank, along with the long-anticipated rescue of Switzerland's second-largest bank, Credit Suisse, people's peace of mind has taken a hit as only 13% of adults recently surveyed said they're still confident in America's banking system. Regarding Credit Suisse, some would say it's about time because after numerous restructurings from the $4.7 billion loss they took on a faulty loan to a hedge fund named Arkegos in 2021, the paint had barely dried after depositors withdrew $110 billion in last year's fourth quarter. So when news of Silicon Valley Bank hit the tape, That was the last straw, and even though the Swiss blame the U.S. Treasury for guaranteeing depositors, which they don't want to do, they, along with the Saudi National Bank, who owned a 10% interest, said, Gnug, and forced a sale to their nemesis, UBS. When it comes to Silicon Valley Bank, the fact that in less than 48 hours this highly regarded commercial bank went bankrupt still has me shaking my head in disbelief. Founded in 1983 to serve the needs of early-stage companies like Triad Systems, where I worked when I graduated from Dartmouth in 1978, we were one of the bank's earliest IPOs. And even though I haven't been a shareholder of SVB for many years, I was devastated when I heard the news because of the fond memories I had, including the fact that one of Triad's founders, a man named Henry Gay, had not only been my boss for five years, he'd been a mentor, and for 30 years before he passed, a client. In any event, Hank served on their board for many years, and as I said, I knew them well. But the demise of Silicon Valley Bank shook everyone's trust to the core. And much like the banking crisis of 2008, the madness of crowds only accelerated it as depositors pulled more than $42 billion in a single day. As in 2008, there was plenty of blame 
to go around. But in my opinion, it starts and ends with the CEO and CFO who made such a horrible decision in 2021 when they chose to invest nearly 80% of their clients' demand deposits in held-to-maturity securities they invested in long-term bonds in a misguided attempt to pick up 1% or 2% in a zero-interest-rate world. Like you said, there are many to blame. Under Trump, for example, Congress loosened regulations which allowed mid-sized banks like SVB to mask certain losses. And under Dodd-Frank, banks with more than $50 billion in assets needed to declare gains and losses on assets they held to maturity. So as rates started to rise, banks like Signature and Silicon Valley Bank would have gotten closer scrutiny because those unrealized losses would have had to hit their capital ratios and therefore their ability to lend. Under Trump, they raised that limit to $250 billion. But the rules regulating how banks value assets on their balance sheet date back to the savings and loan crisis, which I remember well, when in 1993, Congress created the Federal Reserve System when they eased restrictions on interstate banking and cross-state bank mergers. It was then that they decided that the 12 regional reserve banks and their respective governors would be responsible for managing the country's money supply, for bank oversight, and their ability to make loans, while serving as the now infamous lender of last resort themselves. To be clear, Trump's Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act was signed into law on May 24, 2018. But first, it was passed in the House by a vote of 258 to 159, with all but one Republican and 33 of the 193 Democrats. And in the Senate, by a vote of 67 to 31, with 17 out of 47 Democrats. In other words, it was truly bipartisan. And yes, they did raise the threshold from 50 to $250 billion in assets under management, above which a bank would theoretically be considered too big to fail. But even so, SVB still had to undergo annual stress tests, which would have been enough had the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco been paying attention. As the bank's auditors, they were responsible for making sure the bank was in compliance in both a decreasing and increasing interest rate environment. So it almost goes without saying, because as we say, where you sit depends on where you stand, that Greg Becker supported the new law and lobbied for its passage to reduce the frequency and cost of audits to himself and his bank. But how many people know that Becker had been elected by Mary Daly and the San Francisco Fed to their board of directors a year later in 2019 after the law had passed? That sure seems like a conflict of interest to me. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I've heard any apologies from her. Well, I didn't know that, but I do think When rates rose as much and as fast as they did under Powell and this Fed, in less than a year, it's tough to adjust, just like it was in the 1990s with the Latin American debt crisis. And in the face of looser regulation, it's easy to see how smaller banks would have a hard time understanding the volatility that might arise in their balance sheets. But what about the role of the venture capitalists like Peter Thiel, who told all their startups in which he had any interest in a tweet to transfer their money before it was too late. It was like yelling fire in a crowded theater. And I believe 
If that hadn't happened, SVB might still be in business today. But it's too late now, of course. And perhaps the only good thing to come of this is to serve as a warning to other banks about the risk of having so much of their money concentrated in the hands of so few depositors in any single industry, especially today with electronic transfers that one can do on your mobile phone. The risk these days is also posed by social media, which spreads the word like this in an instant. No doubt. And people like Thiel certainly did have skin in the game when he asked for support from the FDIC. But as an investor and an advisor, wasn't it his job to protect and advocate for those companies? As opposed to Mary Daly, who was clearly asleep at the wheel and, along with Becker evidently, focused on other supposedly more important things. But to be fair to SVB, concentration wasn't part of their plan. They'd worked long and hard, in fact, over decades to diversify their client base, from their roots in wineries to real estate to funding local startups in tech and biotech. But with a massive influx of IPOs and m and in 2021, that too would have been tough for any bank of almost any size to offset. For all of 2020, for example, companies raised $61.9 billion, which at the time was the most since 2000. Yet from mid-20 to 21, that number skyrocketed to more than $160 billion in IPOs and $150 billion in SPACs. Look, I know this is a lot to digest, and it may seem like I'm going on too long about Silicon Valley Bank, but I think there are some really important points to make here. Regarding SVB in particular, I don't think it was concentration, a lack of regulation, the outflow of money from depositors, or the rapid rise in rates per se, even though, of course, all of these contributed and are very critical issues, Lori, for other regional banks, including First Republic, given the size of their mortgage portfolio, which they'd underwritten when rates were much lower. But for SVB, it doesn't matter if they invested it all in U.S. Treasuries. That was Becker's justification for doing what he did when they invested so much of it long term. Because as Lee Cooperman of Omega Advisors often says, it was like picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And clients know I've been warning of this for years of what would happen once rates started to rise. But this was the chief executive and chief financial officer of a bank with more than $200 billion in assets. It was their job to be in charge of capital allocation and risk, whether they had a chief risk officer or not. And again, in my opinion, what they did was unforgivable. I think there should be consequences and penalties far more than just being fired for causing so much destruction, like clawing back every nickel of the more than $80 million that Becker, Beck, and several other C-suite executives sold since 2021, which they claim they sold under pre-existing trading plans, supposedly adopted without any inside information. In some cases, those plans were created for a single trade with less than 30 days before the initial trade or trades were executed. I think, Barnaby, what you're trying to say here is that people shouldn't, because of mismanagement, need to be worried about losing the deposits they entrust to a bank. 
because it is their money and not the bank's. Exactly. Investors in the bank's stock or debt are free to assume risk because they're betting the, the potential yield or upside outweighs the possibility of loss. But depositors should not because they're only interested in preservation of capital. And when their bank tells them their on-demand balance means available on demand, they should be confident in the knowledge their money will be there when they need it, which is what the FDIC is there to guarantee. That's true. The $120 billion the FDIC, or what we know as the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, has at the start of the year is paid for by the banks, not the government, and therefore not us as taxpayers. And if that $120 billion isn't enough, the FDIC can always raise more by assessing more fees on the banks. It's true, the banks will most likely charge depositors higher fees one way or another to cover that added cost. But that cost would be disclosed, and it's a cost depositors would, I think, accept as a price for their own peace of mind. One solution we think could help a lot would be to periodically raise that limit on FDIC insurance, at least in line with inflation. And we should start now by raising it from 250000 to $1 million per depositor, so it would cover the majority of depositors. That's right. I'm not sure if everyone understands that, as things stands, the cash in their bank is only guaranteed up to $250,000. So we want to remind listeners that most banks offer what's known as a bank sweep or bank deposit program that consists of 10 or more banks where each is eligible for the FDIC's $250,000 coverage and a person's cash today can be protected up to $2.5 million. In fact, Barnaby, there are a few firms that go higher. And although, on another note, it would take an act of Congress, perhaps the central bank should go back to focusing on price stability and leave full employment to Congress. I spoke earlier about the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1993, which itself was patterned after what Walter Bagahot, the co-founder of The Economist magazine, championed, in the 1870s, when he said the Bank of England's primary job was to avert panic by lending freely to solvent firms against good collateral at high rates. Money flows into and out of commercial banks every day, and sometimes things do get unbalanced. So as the lender of last resort, the Fed's role would simply be to fill in the gaps through overnight lending on which banks pay interest at the so-called federal funds rate. The truth is somewhere in between. Banks are concerned about profits and therefore sometimes mismatch their loan maturities and risks against daily deposits. But in that way, by standing ready to loan a commercial bank enough cash to repay depositors whenever it's needed, the Fed can help to maintain stability. In the meantime, it's no wonder that people no longer feel safe about keeping their money anyplace other than those big banks now considered too big to fail. They'll get less service, of course, and it will be a lot harder for a lot of people to get loans. But at least depositors under Dodd-Frank would know the Fed has promised to stand behind them, at least. And until the Fed or Congress acts on a few of your and my recommendations, that'll probably be the way things go for a while. Again, the biggest issue, as you suggested, is that local depositors and ordinary borrowers rely on relationships with smaller local banks to meet things like payroll or borrow money for expansion. 
Again, I think it's important that we raise the FDIC insurance to $1 million as soon as possible because these issues will keep rolling through the markets. And as long as rates remain where they are and banks struggle now to raise capital with mark-to-mark accounting, most bank assets are difficult to value. Commercial loans aren't actively traded, so an observable market price just may not exist. And on the liability side, how do you determine the value of something like a demand deposit? Methods are likely to vary substantially. So finding common ground will be a problem. Meanwhile, for the first time since 1959, the M2 money supply, which is all the money in our economy, shrank last year, which is contractionary. So without any more help from the Fed, combined with a slowdown in lending that will be the consequence of all this turmoil, that should cure our inflation problem on its own. I know we've been saying this, but given all that's happened in just three short weeks from March 10th to 28th, it has to be a wake-up call to regulators and the Fed that the Fed raise rates too far too fast and a pause is necessary now to see how stable the economy is so banks can come to grips with their balance sheets without valuations falling any further. And again, depositors need to understand how FDIC and SIPC insurance work for banks and investment firms respectively to make sure they know what's guaranteed and what isn't. Because as they say, buyer beware. Well, Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed what you heard today. And if you did, that you'll share it with your family and friends so they can enjoy it too. This is Lori Cammy and Barnaby Levin for the Plutonomics Podcast, signing off. LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth are a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, and advisory services through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and any investment opportunities referenced may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced are from sources believed to be reliable, and any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Neither LK Wealth and Asset Management, LCK Wealth, or Hightower shall in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data, or for statements or errors contained in or admissions from the obtained data and information referenced. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced, and such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth, and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. 